Good morning. How is everyone? Yeah? I'm waiting for the apple. <laughs> Actually, there's a story there. I talked the first time or second or third time. I Oh, that's a ominous thing. There's a story there. It's usually how a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's usually how a lot of stuff starts. But uh, anyway, Mike Hislop is next door. I talked in class once about how my professor of uh, regression had this lovely chalk holder. And I wish I had one because my hands get covered with chalk. And one day he came in and bought me a chalk holder. So my substitute for an apple. Anyway, he still didn't get an A. <laughs> Just kidding. I think he did. Uh, so normally it's not casual Friday. Uh, normally I, I dress a little better. But um, I'm a forester, but I'm allergic to tree pollen. It's cruel irony, isn't it? That's why I teach statistics. I had to go get these allergy shots today, so I wore a short sleeve shirt so I didn't have to disrobe at the doctor's office. I forgot to put a long sleeve shirt back on. So will you forgive me for looking casual? No? Oh, no. <laughs> no A for you. <laughs> okay. What we're going to talk about today is a review of basic statistics. And um, I'm going to do this in uh, probably two lectures. I was going to say three lectures or less, but I hope we'll get through... Um, most of the material today and on Friday, and we'll start into regression next week more formally. But um, basic statistics plays important roles in linear regression because many of the, the, uh, the common principles that you learned when you learned about things like uh, collecting samples, estimating means, doing t-tests, apply to uh, linear regression. We just extend the model from a mean to a mean function when you... Uh, Anyway, so that's the answer. So we're going to do a review of basic statistics to get there. What I would like you to do, uh, if you can, is dig into the textbook right away. I haven't put this on uh, Canvas, but I'd like you to read. It would be great even if you could read um, the, uh, the introduction and the chapter one foundations all the way through to the end. Uh, and then we will do some homework from this chapter as well. If you could get started on that, much of that will be similar to what I talk about today. So the, the hope that I have anyway for statistics, and like I said on Monday, uh, I don't know if you're at all like me, but um, it, it always has helped me. Every year I usually ask, I've stopped asking whether people would like a review of basic statistics. It helps me even every year to go back over this material, just the basic fundamentals, and to hear it from a different person using slightly different vocabulary in a slightly different way. Uh, helps uh, ingrain the basic concepts a little deeper in your mind. So my apologies to those of you, those of you if any of this seems too simplistic, uh, but I did sit there and reread my notes this morning uh, while I was waiting to see if I was going to die of anaphylaxis from the allergy shot. If any of you have ever had those, you have to sit there for 20 minutes to protect the, the hospital from liability in case you keel over on your way home. You even have to sign a little form. If I don't wait and I die, it's my own fault. Anyway. So, and I'm not appropriately caffeinated this morning either. So I've taken antihistamine because of the stupid allergy shots. Can you imagine having pollen allergies in January? <laughs> That's my life. I go get this stupid shot, my nose gets runny, and anyway. Uh, all right, so basic statistics. <laughs> basic statistics. It's a tough life, eh? It's a tough life. At least my house has heat. Uh, it's a tough life. Uh, so what the heck is statistics anyway? When I... Start, uh, took regression, my statistics prof, Tony Kozak, uh, described statistics 
as playing with data or summarizing or calculating things from data. In, in the, the definition that I um, have here in my notes that I've carried from my previous life is that statistics is collection, presentation, analysis, and interpretation of data. So it's more than just the hard to, uh, can also remind me when Blair leaves that up. It's more than just the hard formulas and the crazy calculations uh, that frustrated you so much in your, in your exams. Uh, it's the whole process of collecting, presenting, analyzing, and interpreting data. And statistic has two bran branches. Uh, the descriptive branch and the inferential. Okay. The descriptive branch in statistics is concerned quite literally with methods for describing data to help you with, with uh, understanding what they mean. In descriptive statistics, we're not, uh, say, interested in what we might be able to say about populations from data, but we're interested just in how the data uh, present themselves to us. So classic methods in descriptive statistics are graphics, for example. An XY scatter plot to see if you've, uh, if you've got a relationship between data. Maybe a summary table, number of observations by some kind of class or a bar chart. In inferential statistics, we're concerned with analyzing subsets of data that we hope are representative of or are able to let us make some inferences about the population from which they're, uh, they're uh, collected. So here we're talking about inferences from a sample to a population. And the difference here uh, actually should be relatively stark to you, and it's the cause of a lot of failures and mistakes in, uh, in, in statistics and analysis of data and research issues, because there are so many ways to do this wrong. If you make an inference about a population from a sample that is biased, it's a biased inference. And that, so therefore, a lot of inferential statistics depends on how you actually collect the sample, not just whether you put it through the right formula. Uh, or the other uh, thing about inferential statistics is that we tend to forget sometimes that our inferences are um, full of error. And unless you've sampled a whole population, you don't know uh, with absolute certainty anything about it. Uh, so the key with, um, with inferential statistics is the idea of uncertainty. And so I would like to, now I'd like to emphasize that uncertainty. Um, but I mean that more than just the context of, well, of course, I've collected a sample, but that, and, and of course, a sample has uncertainty in it, but that you think about how uncertainty is affected by the way you collect the data, the way you present the data, the way you analyze the data, and the strength of inferences that you can make with the data. Two concepts uh, flow from inferential statistics, and it's the idea of the population and the idea of the sample. Okay. The population is the, totalitary, uh, the totality of all observations. It's absolutely everything that you could possibly have included in the sample. So totality and that's kind of a, you know, how many times do you use the word totality in common speech? Not very often, but the idea there is to use some big words so it implies to you. 
thinking someone's having trouble in there, but they're just cleaning, don't worry. Um, <laughs> anyway, that was my first failure this morning. Um, maybe it's my second after the shirt, but um, the totality means everything. And rarely, in we're not doing statistics. If you're not going into inferential statistics, or I should say you're not going into inferential statistics unless you have a problem usually with the totality, that you can't sample everything. So you, so you can't measure everything, so you sample a subset, which is um, only part of the totality of observations. Without uh, this concept of the inability to sample the totality of observations, we don't really need inferential statistics. And a really good example I got into in this regression class, actually I had a student from geology who was working on trying to estimate the volume of lava that had been uh, erupted from a volcano in South America somewhere. And they had used remote sensing to build this beautiful spatial map. And they had inferred the elevation differences. And of course, if you know, you can georectify this whole thing, you can estimate the volume of lava that came out of this volcano. Well, the question, of course, is, well, how do you put a confidence interval on that? Because we always put confidence intervals on means, right? Well, the point was that by the time we'd sampled this whole eruption, this whole lava flow, we had a measure of every single pixel. We had a measure of the totality of the whole flow. There was no such thing as a, as a confidence interval because we knew the exact, we'd measured the whole population. So when you're in an environment where you've measured the whole population, this whole idea of samples and uncertainty all goes away. Now the truth, of course, is that there's always measurement error in much of what we do, and when you collect data from satellites and you infer what's going on in a pixel, you're actually getting some kind of average, so you might actually get some idea of what the error is in that, and there may be some ways to model error, but classical sampling error in this case really didn't apply. Um, the, uh, the reason we sample is because it's impossible to get the totality of the observations. I should also say that um, the population size is the, uh, the number of the total observations that you could sample from. We often don't know what it is. So a sample is a subset, and we're often concerned with um, how we select that sample because if we do so in ways that bias our analysis, uh, we end up with biases in our inferences. Uh, all, the other side is that we sometimes can be biased in how we sample and improve our inferences, and there's a really good example in regression uh, that we'll get to. And I love to make that point because I had a great argument with a fellow graduate student about it once. Another thing that I want to talk about is, uh, um, uh, what's the right word? Parameters and statistics. A numerical attribute of a population, like the population mean, is a parameter. So things like means um, are parameters. Here, a sample mean is a statistic. And what's the difference? Well, parameters are theoretical values. If you can conceptualize the idea of the, uh, the average height of all trees in Michigan, you know that it must exist. There are tree, there's a finite number of trees. They all have some measure of height. If we could measure every tree, we could calculate their, their average height. And that height would be a known fixed quantity, unless you're Bayesian but it's a known fixed quality. We, the fact that we don't know what it means doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We don't know what's value doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So parameters are usually what we're trying to estimate with statistics. Parameters 
are usually denoted by capital Greek letters. So what's the, what's the, the, the uh, symbol we use for the population mean? Usually it's mu, right? Statistics, these are usually lowercase English letters. So what do, we, what do we tend to use? So that's the population mean for a sample mean. We use x bar for the sample mean. And actually, one, uh, in, some in survey sampling literature, we sometimes use y, but we'll use x here in regression because that's the most common way of doing it. One of the, um, the key things to think about uh, these things is that these things here, I'm not using my board very effectively, but these things are fixed. They don't have error. They're just typically unknown. But these statistics here, like the sample mean, these things are usually known because we've collected a sample to make our inference. They're known from the sample. And they're variables. Because if we were to collect another sample, we would get another value for it. Okay. So in descriptive statistics, some really classical descriptive statistics we use are graphics. If we're using descriptive statistics, we might use things like means or variances. They give us measures of spread. We might also describe something to do with, uh, what do they call it, kurtosis. I've never used this. Ever run the descriptive statistics tool in, uh, in Access or in, in Excel using the analysis tool pack? There's skewness. An underutilized descriptive statistic is the median. We, we always talk about the mode in basic statistics classes, but I very rarely see it used in research. Those are just examples of them. You move, usually these are not adequate. I don't know how many of you have done research projects for calculating means to describe your data as sufficient. I go out and measure a whole pile of trees in the forest and the average height is usually not sufficient for me. If I'm measuring trees in the forest, it's probably for me because I want to model them. So I'm looking at how height maybe varies with tree diameter. So I'll often use graphical methods like scatter plots, right? Another common method of describing data is using frequency uh, histograms. So let's take, for example, a classic forestry measure is to describe how the population of trees varies by size class. So we'll go out in the forest and collect a bunch of trees and then summarize them in a histogram. And histograms or frequency charts usually have some x variable. Trees, we often do this by diameter. And we'll put frequency on the y-axis, and in a lovely northern hardwood stand, we teach our students that we usually get something they call uh, an inverse j-distribution. But as trees get larger, and you guys have ever walked through northern hardwood forest, you know as trees get larger, there tend to be fewer of them out there. So this might be uh, 6, 8, 10, 12 inches in diameter as we go forward. Frequency. Uh, distributions like histograms like this one. See, I've got my chalk is old and brittle, just like me. 
the only disadvantage to this chalk holder is the, the one that my, the instructor that taught me regression had was like a, a mechanical pencil. You could press the button on the end and the chalk would come out. It was awesome. I still get dirty fingers using this one. Quiet pause. This is an absolute frequency. So maybe we had actually 500 trees in our sample that were in the six inch diameter class. In forestry, typically we don't do them that way. We divide it by the total area sampled and so maybe we'll get something more like 40 uh, trees per acre that we've sampled. But in any cases, they're still absolute. That's just standardizing it per uh, unit area. If we take this frequency distribution here and we divide it by the total number of observations, we get a relative frequency. Does that make sense? So if n is our sample size, if we divide it by the total number, we get a relative frequency. And if we get a relative frequency, then the area under all these bars has to add up to 1. And what we have is functionally an empirical probability distribution. Does that make sense? So if we uh, change that to relative frequency, we get an empirical probability distribution. And why is this important? Because probability underlies uh, much of what we do. Uh, because it relates to uh, the central limit theorem and how we uh, make inferences in basic statistics. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about probability. Any questions about anything so far? I know this is very basic. One of the challenges I have sometimes with my undergrads is getting them really to understand very instinctively that when I write mu, I'm talking about the population parameter. We don't know what it is. It applies to the, to the population, the totality of all observations. It's fixed. It's, it takes a single value. But we usually estimate it with a mean. We might know what that is because we've collected a sample. It comes from a sample of some size n. Right? That it's a variable, that it changes from sample to sample. But it happens to be, in many cases, the, one of the best estimators we have of the population mean uh, out there. All right, so keep, keep, please try to keep that in mind. The other thing I'd like you to keep in mind, and I haven't uh, read the whole textbook yet, is that statistics as a discipline is, I, th I think it should be, notoriously poor in its use of consistent terminology and its consistent notation. Uh, so most of the time, you're going to see x bar, and you're going to know it's the mean. But I think, actually, it may even be in this textbook already when I was reading the first chapter, where Pardo decided not to use standard techno, uh, uh, I think he's, he may have actually said M-E-X to mean the mean somewhere in there. So be really careful when you read a book, uh, read a statistics textbook. If you're finding the formulas are not making sense, it could be because the author has switched terminology. And as an example, in my, one other descriptive statistic we often use is the variance. And the, the so you know the formulas for these things. The sample mean, you know these intuitively. How do you calculate the sample mean? You add up all the observations over the whole set, and 
you divide by n. If I asked you to calculate a sample mean, you'd do that without even thinking. Or you'd just use the average function in Excel, which does the same thing. All right, what's a sample uh, standard deviation? We'll do the variance. That's the sum of the observations minus their mean squared divided by n minus 1. It's just another descriptive statistic. This gives you an idea of the average square deviance of observations around their mean. Just another descriptive statistic. Well, this thing is an estimator of the population parameter mu. And this thing here is an estimator of the population parameter sigma squared. And it happens to be in most sampling environments, it's the best estimator we have of these things. So I worked for a while on a research project to try to use some, some techniques that, are, that explicitly account for measurement error in regression models. And the author kept talking about this variable he called sigma, no, no, it was called sigma uh, UU. And I kept looking at this, trying to figure out what the heck was sigma UU. Well, he was intending that the two U's applied that it was sigma squared. Uh, of this variable u. In his notation, th those things were equivalent. But most of the time, we don't, we, because we tend to work with standard deviations more commonly than variances, you see sigma a lot in statistics textbooks. So when I saw this, I thought that was a standard deviation. Really, he meant it to be a variance. And I wasted about a month banging my head against the statistics textbook until I finally figured this out. All of a sudden, it all made sense to me. So be really careful when you read statistics textbooks that you know, that you know exactly what you mean. Another thing I'll, I'll remind you of this in regression is that we know that in a, in a simple sampling environment uh, that the sample uh, variance is an estimate of the, of the population variance. Well, in regression, we tend to use sigma as well to refer to the population residual variation around the regression line. But it means quite a different thing. You've spent a lot of time with basic statistics. You spent a long time looking at sigma as it's just some sample variance. In regression, it means the residual variance around the regression line. OK, but I digress. And usually, this is the point in the spring when I remember that I should take more time to be more organized. <laughs> so you leave the lecture actually with some perception that I had a plan. Plus, I'm more effective, which is the ultimate goal. Okay, so what is probability? Other than whether you're going to win the, uh, what's the big lottery called here? Powerball or? I don't remember. I don't play lotteries, so. What's the probability of winning those lotteries anyway? I remember calculating, I don't know how those lotteries work, but in Canada, they had a lottery called 649. So they had 49 balls tumbling in a bin, and they pull six, num six balls out, so you get six numbers. What's the probability of winning that jackpot? It turns out it's something like one in, in 14 million. And if it, if it, so the, the question I always ask students were, how much, would you pay for, how much should you pay for a lottery ticket? Or let me put it the other way. Should you, when should you buy a lottery ticket? When it's over 14 million, 
because your chance of you're, you're gonna have to play on average 14 million times before you win. <clears throat> then you win 14 million dollars, you're broken even. So there's really not much point playing a lottery unless the jackpot's more than 14 million. Now on the other hand, how many times a month do they draw these lotteries? A good question, twice a week, so, so we've got, that's 104 times a year, times how long are you gonna live to be 80? 85 now, current lifespan? You gotta start playing when you're a kid twice a week for your whole life, and you're still only gonna play, what is that? 80 times 100, add a couple zeros, 8,000. You're not gonna win. So even if it's over 14 million, anyway, sorry. But the topic is probability, so it's relevant. Uh, we, don't, we don't think about this. Uh, and I had a real argument once with a student when I was an undergrad about this. He played the same lottery numbers all the time. Every game he played the same lottery numbers. Why? Because he'd never seen them drawn yet. They gotta come up eventually, right? So does playing the same lottery number every time increase your chance of winning? Not in the least, because it's a completely random draw every time. There's an, and, and that's actually called, it's called the lack of memory pro property of, of random draws. But lots of people instinctively, oh, we'll get to the Monty Hall problem. Anybody done the Monty Hall problem yet, either? You're, you're, I'm even too old for Monty Hall. What was that TV show called, anyway? It's not the, it's the Price is Right. The other one, what's the one that uh, Bob Barker was? But Monty Hall was a different one. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. That's right. See? You and I are old enough to watch that on TV, right, Glenn? <clears throat> Not just barely, though, because I think that, that program quit when I was a very young kid. Monty Hall, this is a, this is a probability, so I, it's fair for me to digress. Monty Hall's, the game was, there's three doors on a stage. Oops. Three doors on a stage. And the classic one, if you Google this on the internet, is that there's a donkey behind two of the doors. Why it's a donkey, I don't know. I suppose one should be an elephant, right? Because this is America. So I can't draw a donkey, so we'll just put D for donkey and E for elephant. And um, behind another door is a prize. And how does this go? You go up, you, go, you, you and Monty go up to these doors. You don't know which is behind which door. Okay, but you know there's got to be a prize behind one of them. So if you could pick a door randomly, what's your probability of getting a prize? One third. It's one out of three of these. If you pick a door randomly, your probability of getting the prize is equal to one third. But Monty is a crafty bugger, and he opens one door for you, and he reveals the donkey. So you pick a door, then he opens a door and reveals a donkey, and he asks you if you'd like to change your guess. Now, so the question here is, what's the pro probability of the prize given door two is equal to donkey? I've not written this correctly, but you pick door one. All right, here's one, two, three. You pick door one. No, you, you had a one-third chance of being right, right? Monty reveals that door two has a donkey, and he gives you a chance. You can change your mind. You can pick, switch your pick to door three if you'd like. 
Should you or should you not? This was one of my prelim questions when I was a PhD student. The good news is they'd invented the internet so I could look up the answer. And it was open book. Because your instinct is, Monty has revealed that door two is a donkey. So you know that one of these two doors must be an elephant, I think I said, and the other one is the prize. What's the probability of, of each of these doors being the prize, given that we've revealed door D? Your instinct says it's got to be half, right? And if this door never existed in the first place, that that would be true. Except there's something different here, and this is the, the catch on the Monty Hall pro, uh, problem, is that Monty knows which door the prize is behind, and he will never reveal it. So if you've picked the elephant and the prize is behind door two, he wouldn't reveal that because he's not going to reveal to you the prize. That's not how the game works. He's always going to reveal a door that has a losing item behind it. So the game has changed. Once Monty reveals that this door has not got the prize, the probability that this door has the prize has actually gone up because Monty will never reveal it. And if you work the formal probability out, and if you're interested in calculating this, you are better off always, on average, changing your guess. The instinct is that Monty knows something you don't. So new information is revealed. You might not believe it, but new information is revealed about door three when Monty reveals door two. Because it used to be that the probability that this was an elephant was a third. It's now gone up, or down, I should say, down. So you're always better switching. Uh, and if you'd like, prove it to yourself. Google it. You'll find this well explained now. It's no longer a good uh, prelim question, at least not on an open book test. All right. But the point, anyway, of digressing into this probability thing was to, to, to talk about the basic concept of what probability is. And the probability of any given event is the number of times that event occurs out of the set of total events. So. It can only, you can only win once, and there's three possible outcomes at this beginning. The trick, of course, now is that there's only two outcomes. You stay or you go, and the probability of switching is actually higher because you may have picked the prize to begin with, but you may have also picked the elephant, and Monty certainly isn't going to reveal the prize if you didn't. All right, then before I talk anymore and convince you that I'm wrong, I should erase it and get back on track. Probability, right, can be described graphically using distributions, using a, a frequency histogram. If you take this, this absolute frequency and you divide all of these bars by the total number of observations, then you, you've changed it to a relative frequency. It's now a probability distribution. Some really classic probability distributions that we talk about in basic statistics is the probability of a, flip of a single flip of a coin, right, heads and tails. You know something about probability? The sum of, the, of, of all possible events has to equal 1. So the height of this must be 0 0.5, right? Turns out this is actually relatively arbitrary because the height of the probability distribution, it's the sum of the area under most continuous distributions that matters. But this is a probability distribution. Usually they'll say f of x, where x, the event, is the flip of a coin. Simplest probability distribution to draw. You can think of lots of this one, by the way, as a discrete distribution. There are lots of other discrete distributions that we work with, like the sum, let's say the, the roll of a die, the sum of the roll of two dice. Uh, my 
PhD advisor did, oh, I, I forgot, I never do that with this class. He did a really neat, uh, he, he can multitask, I can't. I can only think about one thing at a time. Usually it's, I don't know, what is it that I think about most of the time? I can't, I'm thinking about this, so I can't remember. Um, he did a really neat thing at a conference one where he talked about um, personal p-values, and he was doing this Australian game called Go where you flip two coins. Anybody ever heard of this? Have you heard of it? You've heard of it? Yeah. So he's got one of these because he was Australian. So he's got one of these things, and he packs it to this conference in Washington State, and he's flipping this thing and counting the events and uh, asking the audience to stop when they think that his game is biased. And I, and I do this... Um, Maybe we'll get to it in a, later, but I do this in my undergrad class, and we'll come back to it. But a classic distribution here, um, flip of a coin, roll of die, things that happen that are not continuous variables are called discrete probability distributions. The more common family that we tend to deal with in natural resource problems or problems where we deal with, um, with uh, regression are continuous probability distributions, and the most famous one of which is embedded in Microsoft Excel. It's called the... Uh, Continuous uniform distribution. Continuous uniform has a formula, it's 1 over b minus a, where b is the maximum and a is the minimum. And it, it, it is, the other way of describing it is a random number between two points. This is the continuous uniform. So you go into Excel and you put in RAND and you put in, I don't know, 10 because you want a seed to the random number. It draws you, a, and you can actually put in arguments for this for A and B, and you can actually draw random numbers from this continuous distribution. But the most famous condition, condition or continuous distribution of all is the Gaussian distribution or the normal distribution. And you know what a normal distribution looks like, right? the famous bell curve. It turns out that actually Gauss didn't, didn't identify the normal distribution first. There was another fellow that did it. I love to do this because someday if I do it enough times, 2 pi sigma squared e to the, I always forget at this part, minus x. You don't need to write this down. I'm just testing myself. Like that. All right, that's the formula for the normal distribution. Will you ever need to know it? No. What this formula does, it's a function of, this distribution is a function of two parameters. So this distribution here is a constant, but you have to give it A or B to define its range. This distribution is a function of two parameters, mu, the mean, and sigma, the uh, standard deviation. It takes that form, and we know that it takes the shape of a beautiful bell-shaped curve. One of the... the um, the attributes of this distribution is that any variable you draw from it are from pl plus infinity to minus infinity. I always draw the infinity wrong, and i got to remember my rule. Never write anything on the board that you can't read. So these tails taper asymptotically to zero. We know some other things about the normal distribution. It's perfectly symmetric, which means that the mean of this distribution also equals the median. The median is the value that separates exactly half of all the events on each side. So it's perfectly symmetric. You got half the probability on each side of this distribution. Right? So we know that the area under here 
has to be equal to 0.5 because the area under every probability distribution has to add up to, to, uh, to 1. The shape of this distribution depends on on sigma, the standard deviation. And when sigma gets larger, the distribution gets wider. When sigma gets smaller, it compresses. We usually draw probability distributions like this. Maybe we put a y-axis on there. Why not? Well, because y is somewhat arbitrary. The distribution is centered on mu, and it goes from minus infinity to positive infinity. So I have no reason to believe that 0 is heuristically down here. So we tend often not to draw the y-axis. We also don't draw the y-axis because the actual value of the distribution is not usually very relevant to us. Because in continuous probability distributions, the probability of any single event, all right here, x equals 27, the probability of any specific discrete event is 0. It's 0 because the probability becomes exponentially or intrinsically extremely small of a single event happening. You can evaluate the height of the distribution, but the probability of events in continuous distributions is the probability between ranges. So here's this here is x plus 0.0001. If you want to get the probability of a single event, take that the area in this little range here. Right? That's the probability of those that range of events, of x falling between those two values make that range infinitely smaller, it eventually becomes zero. So the probability of a single event under a continuous distribution is zero. That may seem counterintuitive to you. The, the flip side is that in this distribution, because it's continuous, there's an infinite number of significant digits on any one of these variables. And so the fact that you can know it precisely is, is uh, is generally considered uh, inconsequential or impossible. Okay. We do know heuristically that somewhere out here, this value here is x plus sigma, one standard deviation. We know that uh, about 68% of the probability lies between um, x plus sigma plus or minus, I should have written it this way, x plus or minus sigma, one sigma. So if you know something about the distribution, if this is one sigma here, this is 68% of the probability. 95% roughly is x plus or minus two times sigma. And I am in favor of an opinion that my regression prof had, which actually isn't re uh, relevant only to regression, but that we underutilize or we underreport variances in the work we do. If you guys have ever written a journal paper before, you're, you're often asked to provide some kind of little table that gives you a summary of the data. That orients the reader to what your data look like. And if all you report is a mean and a standard error or a confidence interval on the mean, you're describing something about the mean itself. You're not describing something about how variable your data are. If you describe the average and you give it a standard deviation, then that lets your reader know something about 
uh, how variable the actual observations themselves were. And I'll reemphasize that point when we get to uh, talking about the sampling distribution of the mean. Okay, one of the things about the normal distribution that's problematic is that it can be difficult to make probability statements from it. If I ask you, I'm about to flip a coin, what's the probability that it'll be uh, heads? And it's a fair coin. You can tell me it's 0.5, right? And, in, and you can heuristically make some probability statements very quickly from this distribution. What's the probability that any random variable that follows a normal distribution is greater than the mean, 0.5? And you can make some heuristic statements up there as well. But what's the probability that it falls between this arbitrary range in here? How do you calculate that? With, continue, or with discrete distributions, you can identify all the events discreetly, and so you can just sum up their probabilities and you're done. With continuous distributions, you have to find the area under this curve that falls between these two points. And the, the way I remember that we did that mathematically is using calculus. You use integral calculus to solve for that, and that's not very fun. So what we've done, what we've tended to do instead is take advantage of the uh, ability to scale any normal distribution so that matches a standard distribution from which we can look these probabilities up in tables. So we use something called centering and scaling to do that. If x is, a, is some kind of random variable and it follows a normal distribution with some mean and standard deviation, then we can convert this random variable to one that follows a standard normal distribution using centering and scaling. Now, this is a little bit of notation that you'll see commonly when referring to probability distributions. X is our random variable, something. By the way, the history of the normal distribution, I don't know if this is true, but it had to do with, and a really good example is estimating background noise and signals. And I saw a really neat one on Wikipedia once when I was playing with this. But if you think about static in the background on a radio signal, uh, since uh, sound waves follow sigmoid patterns, if you look at the amplitudes of those sigmoids, if they vary in the background noise, the really big peaks, the really big chirps in static are really rare. Those are the really large or really small values outside of the middle of dead silence but they're much more common to have small variations around dead silence. And so that's a really good rationale for, a, for a, an example of a phenomenon that can help you understand intrinsically where the idea of a normal distribution can come from. Um, although we spend mo much of your academic undergraduate career convincing you that that's how the distribution of grades and classes is supposed to look. And fortunately, if you're lucky, you find yourself out here somewhere. X is our random variable, this little tilde follows a distribution of n for normal, and the parameters of the normal distribution are given here. If this is true, and we have some other variable, z, we can transform this uh, random variable to a standard normal distribution by taking every value and subtracting the mean and dividing it by the standard deviation. So z here is what we call a standard normal. And that follows a normal distribution with a mean of 0 and a standard deviation of 1. 
and then we give you a table, and you look these probabilities up. So you can take any value. If someone says to you, tell me the value, the, the amount of probability between x equals 5 and x equals 10. Well, if you can subtract the mean and standard deviation, you convert those to what are called z-scores, or z-scores, whoops. And then, good news is I actually did that. My sister tells me I sound American now when I talk to her on the phone, which is like insulting to a Canadian. <laughs> but I am American now, so I suppose I should say Z. Um, uh, then we can make probability uh, statements just by drawing numbers from a table, or in the statistical software you use, those tables are embedded within the software, so you shouldn't have a problem with that. This is called centering and scaling. If math isn't your strong point, think of it this way. If you, if you subtract the mean from every observation, what are you doing to this distribution? If the mean is a positive number, you're just taking every possible value of x and you're shifting them all left equal to the value of the mean. That's what we mean by centering. So it's going to center it on 0 because we shift it to the mean of the middle of the distribution. Any values that are greater than, any x values that are greater than the mean get squished that way and any that are less that get squished even further to the left. And by dividing by sigma, we either expand or contract the distribution to match a standard value of 1. So this is called centering and scaling. Why is this useful? It's useful because we can make probability statements very easy from a table that we can look up. So we can, we, if we ask a question like, what's the probability that my random variable x is greater than 70? And this is an example I have in my... Do I even have it here anymore? Uh, no, I don't even have it here. But if we know that, if we take this x and we convert it to a z, we, we subtract mu or sigma, and if we know the values of mu, let's say mu is equal to 68 and sigma is equal to 3.6, then we can substitute those in and we get, actually I should put it in here, 68. We can then say these things are now equivalent. What's the probability that um, z is less than, uh, let me rewrite that over here. We can solve this thing for x. So now we have x is equal to z plus, um, sorry, it's z times 3.6 plus 68, and we can then substitute this into our normal distribution. I had it back here, probability, did I say z originally? x greater than 70. That's the equivalent of probability z times 3.6 plus 68 is greater than 70. And I've completely lost what I was doing. We can calculate the probability of z being greater than 70, and then we can substitute back into the equation. And where I was going with that, I don't know where I was going with that. But I better figure it out. All right, so let's quit there since I've lost track of my chain of thought and I'll come back to it on Friday. 
Um, what I would like you to do is read chapter one in the textbook. I mentioned that already. And read the, um, the introduction because it'll get you orient oriented to the way that Pardo was thinking. And if you're going to come to the recitation, or even if you're not going to come to the recitation tomorrow, the R recitation, at the recitation tomorrow, I want to show you an example of using R to do some uh, basic graphical and summary statistics, get you oriented to how R thinks and breathes. I've, I will put on um, Canvas today a script file and a handout that if you can read that before you come, that would be really helpful. I'll also bring some examples of some R textbooks that I found that are really useful, and uh, we'll get started orienting you towards uh, R that way. Yes, sir. When and where? The recitation is in the small computer lab here in the building, and it's two doors down from this room. I think that's what it says in the catalog. I'll, I'll double check that. But that's where it has been historically. And that room is reserved for this class during that time. So you know, it, it, we can boot everybody out if they're in there using it. At what time? It's at 11, the same time as the class. Yeah. OK. We're actually just right about a minute before the end of the class anyway, so it's a good time for me to save face and send you off and get myself straightened out again. Uh, if you have any questions about anything, send me an email or drop by my office or whatever, and I'll be happy to explain it. We'll finish, we should finish this, um, if not on Friday, on early on Monday. Sorry, not Monday, we have no lecture on Monday. On Wednesday, Monday is MLK Day. And then we'll get back to work on Wednesday. All right, thanks folks. I did this wrong. No, no, but I mean, what you're basically trying to say is that the probability that you can get a Z score equal to 3.6 plus 68 is less than 70, so you would go to the table and look up 70. Yeah. Right, and that would give you the Z score, and, or that would tell you the probability because it would be some sort of decimal, no. right? What you can do here, no, I've got it right in my notes, I just have to get my head screwed on straight. You can actually, if you make a probability statement, you can actually substitute Z in there, and you're reducing these 70 values. So, right, okay. so what I did it, what I did it, what got me wrong was I put the bracket there. That's okay. what I did wrong, right? And so you can solve this. You can reduce this. You can reduce this. So you can take, yeah, you can see that's the probability. See, I shouldn't do this now. See, thank you. Now I got it right, and I've let everyone go. Uh, 3.6. 70, um, sorry, minus 68. And then that's uh, Z greater than 70 minus 68 over 3.6. And if you can, now you can solve this, go to your table and look it up. This value here then transfers right back to the original question. That's what I meant to do. I put the bracket in the wrong spot, which is what got me flustered. But it always happens. Every spring. It takes me about a week to get in the swing of things. Thanks, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Through the slide next year, if we both want to be in your R class, right. we both have class at that time. Oh, you're screwed. Yeah. No, you're not. Um, I can help you at a different time. Because really, what we I don't do very much that's organized in the recitation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm guaranteed to be available, but if there's another time that works for you, then I can guarantee myself to be available then, too. Whatever you post on that canvas thing yeah. on the regular lecture. It won't, it won't even let us Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know what? I, I will just post everything on the regular site. Just tell everybody on the canvas site to look at the regular site because you have to be in this class to be in that one. Yeah. And then they can just cross over. Okay. Yeah. Okay.